Shalom and welcome to Shomer Mitzvot, Torah Observant, a series on practical messianic living and apologetics. I'm the author, Torah teacher Ariel ben Lyman Hanavi. Torah observance is a matter of the heart. It always has been and always will be. The Torah proper instructed the people of Israel to love Adonai your God with all your heart, with all your being, and with all your resources. This is where Shomer Mitzvot begins, by loving Hashem and accepting Him on His terms. By this, I mean accepting His means of covenant obedience. For today, this means acceptance of Yeshua, His only Son, for Jew and non-Jew alike. Okay, let's pray. Avinu Malkinu, our Father, our King Lord, we love you tonight. And uh, Father, we want to thank you for bringing us back together again, another week's worth of studies. And we know, Father, that you are, um, you are opening our hearts and minds to understand more and more from your word. And so we thank you and we, we say that we rely on your spirit to, uh, to illumine the text to us. Father, we also know that you are imparting things to us for a reason. It's not mere entertainment, as, as it can be entertaining at times, but we know that we are called out of this world for a reason, and we are called into your holiness for a reason. And so, Father, help us to understand those, those purposes and our, uh, our, um, our assignments, as it were, as, as we continue to be kingdom builders and uh, drawing all men to you by the very actions that we do. So, Father, it is with those words that we anticipate studying with the, um, the goal of application in mind. Uh, we want to learn of you so that we can be better ambassadors and witnesses for your name. For it's all about you, and we recognize that. Yeshua, we thank you, and it's under your authority that we sit here tonight. Amen. All right, we have, counting this, this session, we have one, two, three, four, five, six sessions left. I want to somewhat accelerate our, um, our studying. In other words, if you've looked at the commentary online before, you'll see this broken down into about 12 different um, sections or, or such. Um, and we stopped at section 4, I think, last week. And so we would technically be at, at section 5 today. But I want to give you 5, 6, and 7 tonight in one shot. Because I think we are catching it. At least I perceive that we're catching it based on the homework that I'm reading. Those of you who are turning in homework, it looks great. I'll have, them, uh, I'll have grades on them next time. Um, but let me give you a handout that starts out with number 5. What I want to do is, um, the reason I want to accelerate our... our um, our class a bit is because I believe that we're catching the gist of, of Galatians, and I want to, be, before we lose it, because this is a two-part class, I want to be able to get into some of the actual um, looking at the letter and going through it verse by verse and, and, and picking it apart, as opposed to my commentary isn't really a verse by verse. Unless you've downloaded the online version and you'll notice the in the extended excursus, then it is verse by verse, and that's what I'm going to be looking at. So, okay, we'll leave that. So what I'll do is tiptoe through number five, six, and seven. Works of Law Part Two. Works of Law Part One was just the background to understanding 
how the Judaisms used the phrase of sorts, or how they how they had established this kind of closed set. Remember the whole talk on covenantal nomism? How they felt that we are covenant members by virtue of God declaring us a people group. Therefore, we are the recipients of God's promises by virtue of God calling us out from the earth and giving us. And in fact, the paradigm is true. God called Israel out corporately, gave her the co- covenant corporately. He didn't give the corp- covenant to them individually, much like some of the other uh, false religions of the earth today. You know, Joseph Smith alone gets the revelation, or Muhammad alone gets the revelation. Not with Judaism. They're like no other people group in the earth. God calls two million plus people at the foot of the mountain and gives them the revelation. They all saw it. Yeah. Okay, so um, that was the background. Works of Law Part 2 starts to focus on this little exchange between Peter and Paul in Galatians chapter 2, verse 15, 16, and 17, um, because it becomes a hermeneutic key to understanding. Now, in reality, I've already given you the hermeneutic key to understanding that exchange, but we're going to look at it again anyway. So I'm going to slow down just a little bit and read some of this. Everyone there? What I give you is a somewhat wooden translation from the Greek first. Uh, But knowing that a person is not justified from works of law, but through trust of Messiah Yeshua. Obviously, I've turned Jesus Christ or Jesus Christos into Messiah Yeshua, but the Greek would say Jesus Christos. Uh, Trust of Messiah Yeshua, even we unto Messiah Yeshua trusted in order that we might be justified from trust of Messiah and not from works of law, because from works of law not will be justified all flesh. I left it woodenly just just for the sake of our study here. This is a literal rendering of verse 16 from the Greek. Being declared righteous by Hashem is the goal of all men who seek Hashem, of sorts. You don't just come unto Hashem without wanting to be declared righteous by God. That's an entirely Hebraic concept. The king, the, the, the motif of a king blessing his subjects is, is, is at play here. And God is the righteous king, so you more or less approach the throne, and he says, what can I do for you? I think that's where the whole Santa Claus thing got invented, but God says, what can I do for you? And you say, you know, declare me righteous. It's kind of like getting knighted by the queen, I guess, right? You know, she extends the sword and makes you a knight or a sir or whatever we call it. In essence, being declared righteous by Hashem is that same motif in mind here. However, we have to stop. And this is where the, the, those of you who are in Mark's hermeneutics class, the James and Paul little issue. Righteousness can be defined in two ways. Now, I'm not saying that there are two standards of righteousness. I'm merely saying that there are two um, attributes, I guess, of righteousness, or the way righteousness is portrayed in the Torah. Righteousness can be defined in at least two ways. Probably more, but I distilled it to these two. Behavioral righteousness, which is actually doing what is right. That's one. And then the second righteousness is forensic righteousness, which is, which is defined as being regarded as righteous in, this, in two ways. Okay, so A is just set apart, and then B has two qualities to it. Forensic righteousness in that A, God has declared him... Uh, God has declared, God has cleared him, I'm sorry, of guilt for past sins, and B, that God has given him a new human nature inclined to obey Hashem rather than rebel against him as before. So, righteousness, I'm just saying as, let me use this motif. It's a coin. So we got um, behavior on one side and forensic on the other side. One coin, two sides. Righteousness is both behavioral and forensic. Forensic is, of course, just a fancy word that refers to... Um, what do I mean by forensic? I'll let you guys answer because I know what you mean. I know you know what I mean. 
What do I mean by forensic righteousness? I'll use church terms. Justification, sanctification. Now do you guys know what I mean? Justification is is a monergistic work that God does in your life and it's static. That is to say, it 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 is it is um, effectual all at once. God saves you in that sense. He declares you righteous in a forensic sense, which means a legal sense, by the way. Um, it's a legal status change in God's court of law is the picture I'm painting. You know, you walk in a criminal, and yet because of Messiah Yeshua, the greatest DA ever, ever man has ever known, you leave the court not a criminal. So, in other words, the, the, the punishment for what your crimes are is death, but you don't receive the death penalty. You know, the, when the judge brings the gavel down, poof, he says, acquitted. And you're just like, why? And, and it's because this D.O. over here has decided to drop all the charges. He's going to take them all himself. Yeah, that's what you should do. So, forensic righteousness, I do see your hand, by the way. Forensic righteousness is more or less the justification that we receive when we go from sinner to saint. But I leave the courtroom still with my hang-ups and my hold-ups. You know, I'm, I've still got my proclivities to drunkenness and anger and whatever it is I entered the courtroom with. Therefore, for the rest of my life, the Spirit and I enter into a synergistic work called behavioral righteousness or sanctification, where I'm now on a path outlined by God to clean my life up, to become more like Yeshua himself. That's what Paul says in Romans, that we are actually saved so that we can actually be conformed to the righteousness of Messiah. But this is all under one coin called righteousness. That's why Paul uses the word trust and James uses the phrase obey. <laughs> trust and obey. Sanctification, I'm sorry, uh, yeah, uh, justification, sanctification. Forensic righteousness, behavioral righteousness. As you're c- cleverly starting to see, they're really parts of the same list, to put it those ways. Basically, Paul is saying, you're not, you can't achieve um, right, you can't achieve, I'm going to use church parlance if you don't mind. You can't achieve salvation by the things you do. That's what, that's Paul's argument. So is he arguing from a, from a doing something toward, for the, for the person, the prospect, who's going towards a goal of be, being declared righteous by God or saved. So Paul's going to step in and say, the way you do that is by faith. But James is talking to people who are already saved. Yet in their sa- saved state, they're, they have no behavioral righteousness in their life. There's no fruit on their tree. So he's going to try and get them, slap them around a little bit and say, look, if you're really saved, there's going to be works. And it's the same Greek word, ergos. Um, ergon, I'm sorry. You're going to have works because that's the way God designs it. Like the little bumper sticker says, God doesn't create junk. God doesn't save a person only to leave them on their own. No, God saves you and then fills you with the spirit so that you can do the work that God calls you to do. And that's God's guarantee to us. That's why Yeshua said he'd send the Spirit. The guarantee from God is that if you are genuinely saved, you will have works, no ifs, ands, or buts. No discussion. So Paul is arguing from, a, from what we, to use church parlance again, a legalistic salvation, yet James is arguing from a dead faith that was leading to nowhere. They are claiming that they're believers. Yeah, what is the example he uses? Yeah, you know, you see your brother over there in the corner and he's hungry and you say, Shalom, and you keep going? No. James says, stop, help him, feed him. Of course, I'm midrashing. I'm paraphrasing but yeah if you really had faith and love for your brother you'd stop and meet his physical need prove your faith by your actions i'll show you he and what does he say you ask me to show you my faith without works i'll show you my faith by my works in other words 
My behavior vindicates my position. My sanctification vindicates my justification. So that's James is approaching. He's, he's, he's taking the saved person and pointing back towards the other side of the coin. Paul is starting off on the other side of the coin and pointing towards the other. So one coin, two sides. The proof is in the Hebrew and the Greek, and I'll get to that in a second. Yes. The Hebrew, for, the Hebrew word for justification would be um, tzaddik which is righteous. But those of you who know anything about Hebrew know that tzaddik is also a noun. Uh, I'm sorry, it's also a, uh, an, an adjective. It's righteousness. Righteous and righteousness are, are f- the same word in Hebrew. Or we could say trust and trusting are the same word. Let me use a different phrase. Let me use church parlance again. The Hebrew word for faith and the Hebrew word for like faith as a noun, like do you have faith? Okay. The Hebrew noun there and the Hebrew verb are the same cognate. So first I ask my friend, do you have faith? He says, yes. Then I ask him the next question. When's the last time you faithed? F-A-I-T-H-E-D. Now the English doesn't allow for that, but the Hebrew does. And so does the Greek. So the concept in, in Hebrew and in Greek, which is confirmed by language, is that they're struck to the same coin, even by the very words that are used. Now we don't have that in English, right? When's the last time you faithed? What we say is when's the last time you believed? But pisteo and pistis are the same cognate, in which is faith, in, in the Greek. So it's foreign to the Hebrew model, of which the writers of the apostolic scriptures were. It's foreign to the Hebrew model to be declared righteous by God, but not walk in righteousness. It's foreign to the Hebrew model. If you are righteous, you will walk in righteousness. And in fact, sometimes we translate the, verbs, uh, the words those way. We say he was a righteous person. Versus saying he did righteous acts. But the Hebrew is saying the same thing. He was tzaddik. I'll give you, I'll give you a case in point. Isaiah, and you can look this up if you want. Isaiah 60 verse 12. All your people shall be righteous. Is what it says in most translations. If you guys want to check me on that. Anybody have it? Isaiah 60 verse 12. I don't have this in my notes. I'm pulling this out of memory. I, I think I'm right. I think I'm right. I think I'm right. I think I'm right. A little engine who could. I think I can. Is that right? All your people shall be righteous. They shall inherit the the branch of my planting, the work of my hand, something like that. All your people shall be righteous. 60-12? No? 60 60-21? I know there was a two in there. I, I'm dyslexic, okay? 12, 21. Yeah, what does it say, 60, 21? Yeah, the Hebrew actually says, kulam sadikim. Literally, if I just translate it woodenly, all your people, righteous, shall be righteous, shall do righteous acts. All of them righteous, yeah. By the way, yeah. either way you slice that verse, the, the, you could translate it, all your people shall do righteous things or be righteous or act righteously or be righteous. The, 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 the key point is that um, there's no differentiation in the Hebrew thought between the identity and the actions that follow. By the way, that verse becomes a point of um, a chair passage, so to say, for the rabbis who say, that, see, God's declaring all of us righteous. That's why all you have to do is just be a Jew. That's one of their chair passages, by the way. 
Alright, but we don't want to go into that right now. Um, I do have a different paper on the website called... Gosh, where is it? Is it credited to him as righteous? I can't remember. Uh, but it, it, it outlines what I'm talking about. Yes, Mimi. Yeah, that's, that's actually called a tzedakah or tzedakah box. Yeah, same. Now we've translated the word as charity, yeah. But it's, it's like a righteous box. Yeah, because in the rabbi's mind, he, she, does everybody know what she's talking about? If, you, if, if you're from a Yiddish background, it's a pushka. Um, the little box that sits in some synagogues that's stuck to the wall and it's got a slot in it. It's not for your mail or your bills. Rather, and sometimes on the side it'll say tzedakah. Um, I think it's... Uh, tzedakah or tzedakah tzedakah box Neil Tzedakah that's his last name yeah um, a tzedakah box is, is and what, it, what they call it is a charity box as you go into synagogues you can put your money in there your tithes your dues the idea is that because you are righteous then that's your duty to do that and so that's what we call it a charity box of sorts but um, a righteous box Second paragraph, Yeshua has made forensic righteousness available to everyone, made it available to them, not everyone grabs it, but he made it available to everyone by paying on everyone's behalf the penalty for sins, which Hashem's justice demands, which of course is death. Forensic righteousness is appropriated by an individual for himself the moment he unreservedly puts his trust in Hashem, which at this point in history entails also trusting in Yeshua the Messiah upon learning of him and understanding what he has done. The task of becoming behaviorally righteous begins with appropriating forensic righteousness. You can't really do righteousness in God's eyes unless you first are righteous in God's eyes. That's why the wicked can't do righteousness. They don't have the spiritual capacity to do so. Because Paul says that the Torah is spiritually discerned. It's spiritual. He says so in Romans. The Torah is spiritual. You can't do God's ways unless you have the Spirit residing in you. That's why Paul is so opposed to the proselyte conversion ceremony that merely turns a Gentile into a Jew. Now, I'm using the word merely for, for impact because it speaks nothing of the change of the heart of the individual. Unless the Messiah takes up residency within you, the Spirit of God writes his, his signature on your heart, you're not doing anything in Paul's estimation. Yeah, you're changing, you're painting. It's like, it's like taking... <laughs> you're just what? You're just being nice. Or it's like, I call it so much intellectual nutrition. It's like taking... Um, it's like taking your car that's filthy, muddy on the outside, and it's got and it's trashed on the inside as well. You got garbage, you got you know pop cans and 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 food in the back seat. You take it to the car wash, and you put your quarters in, and you spray off the outside, and then you drive away. <laughs> you haven't really done anything. You clean the outside, but the inside's still filthy. And in Paul's estimation, the inside is what matters. In first and foremost, in the transformation for an individual. If the transformation on the inside doesn't take place, the transformation on the outside never will follow. So you have to focus on the inside first. Let God write his, his spirit on your heart first. That will then begin your journey towards behavioral righteousness, i.e. walking in Torah or walking in righteousness. So that's why Paul's going to say to you guys, you know, great, I'm, 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 I'm Paul talking to the, those who didn't listen to his letter and still went under the knife and became converts. Great, you went from being Gentile to Jewish. But that doesn't mean you can keep the Torah any better. In God's eyes, the Torah is spiritual, and the only way to walk out Torah and, God, with, and get God's approval is to walk it out in the Spirit. You, you fail to walk it out in the Spirit, 
counts for nothing. In fact, at the end of your life, it will count for nothing. God's not going to say, yeah, I, gosh, I should let you in because you converted. <laughs> you know? Oh, gosh, I should let you in because you kept all the Torah perfectly. Nope. In fact, you can't keep the Torah without the Spirit of God. So Paul's going to come along and say, no, 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 no. It's Messiah first. Then the rest will follow. So that's what I mean by that. The task of becoming behaviorally righteous begins with appropriating forensic righteousness through Yeshua. It occupies the rest of a believer's life because we're never quite perfect until this mortality puts on immortality. Um, It occupies the rest of a believer's life being completed only at the moment of his own death when he goes to be with Yeshua. Then we'll change and we'll we'll see him as he is and we'll be like him. But for the moment, we live with this, what we call old man, new man. So um, what's important to keep in mind here is the difference between these two kinds of righteousness. When I say difference, I mean they're struck to the same coin. Therefore, they serve one another. They work in tandem. They're not, it's not, okay. Greek model of this would be Greek. Either or. It's either this or that. It's either justification or sanctification. That's Greek. When I say Greek mindset, I don't mean in the Greek language now. The Greek language, pistis and, and, and pisteo are cognates of the same. Pistis is the noun, if I'm correct, and pisteo is the verb. Um, but the Hebraic model is both and. It's both this and this. And sometimes that's a tension within you. That's, why Paul, that's what Paul's trying to describe. I know I'm righteous, but I do unrighteous things at times. There's this little, you know, little struggle. It's a, there's a tension within me because I do something wrong and the spirit inside me taps the, my own spirit and, and is grieved and reminds me, hey, that was wrong. You know, I, 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 I wrong my neighbor and I don't bat an eye. Something's wrong there. But if I wrong her, the spirit inside me is going to go, Ariel. You need to go rectify what you did. You need, you need to go reconcile with her. You need to go make that right. And the Spirit's not going to let me sleep until I do. That's the point. Okay. So the Hebraic model or the biblical model is you're both, sanctifi- you're both justified and you're being sanctified. And um, this would be... Let's just start all over with that. Monergistic. Um, it's, it's made up of two Greek words. Mon, one, ergos. Ergos is uh, work. Like we have ergon, ergon, ergon namas. Uh, one work, one energy. Versus sanctification is synergistic. Sometimes you'll see it written synergistic, but synergistic. Soon, multiple ergos work. So what ends up happening is, unfortunately... Maybe I'll just close with this. Um, in the Christian church today, with the watered-down theology that we're teaching our people, we end up saying it like this. God stands at the door and knocks. This is the preacher speaking to the person sitting on the front row whom he knows is a sinner. God stands at the door and knocks. He sent his son to die for you. He's done all he can do for you. Now his hands are tied. He's just waiting for you to cross the line, make the decision, accept him. In that description, they describe it as synergistic. God has done everything he can do. Now it's up to you 
to make the decision. It's synergistic. It's two working. God works, and then you step in and complete the work. And then after the person gets saved, the pastor might say to that person who just got saved, now, to live a righteous life, all you got to do is let go and let God. Just be still and know that he's God. Let go and let God. Just relax. Let God take control of the wheel. God's not your co-pilot. He's the pilot. You've seen those bumper stickers. God is my co-pilot. So in their model, salvation is a synergistic work and sanctification is a monergistic work. But the Bible is actually quite the opposite. The metaphor for salvation is that we are dead in trespasses and sin. We're unbirthed babies. Babies don't birth themselves and dead people don't raise themselves. God steps in and opens the eyes of the blinded individual. God gives them the ability to make the choice. It is true, but the first work is God's. It's monergistic. If God doesn't open your eyes, you ain't making the choice. You can't. It's not possible for you to do so. If it were possible, we wouldn't need God. We could make the choice on our own. It's because God actually gives every man a chance that every man is condemned. So at some point in time, we don't know how God, I mean, it is mysterious, but somehow God opens the eyes of people. And I, I, here's the way I see it. They're, they're groping in darkness, not really searching for God. God in his mercy steps in and pops their eyes open and gives them a chance to choose what Moshe would say, choose life or choose death. And most people go, you know, death looks pretty good. I think I'll choose death. And they do. They choose death. So that when the day comes that they stand before the judgment seat, Yom Hadin, they're complaining, God, 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 no, 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 you never showed me, you never, no, 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 you can't see me to hell, nope, nope, I don't know who Jesus is, blah, 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 blah. And God's like, you know, you know, play back that beautiful bean footage. And he's going to show them the time when he opened their eyes. Sorry, I'm sorry. I watch entirely too much TV, right? I'm just joking. He's going to take them back to the time when he opened their eyes and they chose. And then God's going to remind them, nope, you chose. I opened your eyes, so I gave you a choice. I popped it open and you chose the wrong thing. And I'm, I'm of the impression that God actually opens people's eyes multiple times throughout their life. Especially if they have a color life. So salvation is really monergistic. But once he does open their eyes, then the spirit takes up residency with the individual. And the spirits and the person then work out their salvation. Like Paul says, you know, crucify the flesh and things like that. Paul's telling us to do those things. You know, work out your salvation, crucify the flesh, uh, put away, mortify the deeds of the flesh and things like that. Paul's telling us to do those things. But in reality, he knows that it's the spirit's work in us that is expecting us to do. So, all right. Okay. In essence, then, works of law, let me just uh, transition now, or, or give you a summary. Works of law, then, in essence, refer to those group requirements as outlined and delegated by each individual group, functioning under the prevailing Judaisms of Paul's day. Rav Shaul, Apostle Paul, missionary to the Gentiles, had to defend the correct Torah viewpoint in his letters addressed to the churches at Galatia, which was a region, by the way. Galatia was a region. It wasn't a town. It wasn't a city. There's no city called Galatia. It was a region. Um, so uh, he had to defend the correct view to, his, to the churches at Galatia or the communities at Galatia, the ecclesia, specifically chapter 5 in Galatians, as well as to the one in Ephesus. Circumcision, a shorthand way for Paul to say, quote, conversion to Judaism or becoming a Jew. Of course, the, the, when I use the word circumcision, the audience is Gentile. Notice what it says, conversion to Judaism. You don't convert Jews to Judaism. Yeah. You've heard the phrase Judaizing? What is it? Judaizing is the Greek term. Um, it only shows up in Paul's writings, too. We'll talk about that later on. You don't Judaize a Jew. You Judaize a Gentile. So when Paul writes circumcision and the um, audience is Gentile, then he's referring to conversion to Judaism becoming a Jew. When he uses circumcision to the Jewish people, he's referring to Jewish identity. 
but it's still the same net effect. Circumcision doesn't get you in. Circumcision doesn't get you in. Works the same way. All right. This term, circumcision, or the act of circumcision, was historically misused by the Jewish people. But there's no reason for us, the current um, Torah communities, the emer and the emerging Torah communities, viz. the church, to shrink back from that which God has clearly given. In other words, we don't just throw the baby out with the bathwater. Because the Judaisms of the first century misused circumcision, there's no reason for the church today to shy away from circumcising their baby boys. That's my point. Right? You understand that? Okay. Just because they misused it doesn't mean that we throw the baby out with the bathwater. There's nothing wrong with the mitzvah of circumcision. It's a commandment. It's good. If it's being misused, you take away the commandment for a while until the community gets right their view of the commandment. Then you can give it back to them. Uh, question real quick? We don't know. Uh, actually, I could say midrashically why, but uh, we don't know for sure why God said the eighth day. The eighth day was the first. The, the woman who gave birth was um, declared unclean Tamei, for a certain period if she gave birth to a boy and then another longer period if she gave birth to a girl. But after the eighth day, she was declared clean from her blood impurity because when she gets birth, blood is, uh, is there and blood defiles. So on the eighth day of her purification, uh, I'm sorry, on the eighth day after giving birth, she is declared by God as clean. So she takes um, one mikvah. And then after another eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve, thirteen, fourteen, on the fourteenth day, she takes another one. Um, and so it's on that eighth day that she can actually begin sexual relations with her husband again if she wanted to. It's consequently then that that's the same day that God said, oh, by the way, circumcise the baby. So it, it gets done by, by both. If you want a little more information, I did a commentary to Parashat. It, it isn't, uh, it might be in Leviticus. I'll, yeah, there's, I did a commentary on the web, but I can't remember off the top of my head which commentary it is. I, I just, it's, it's, I think it's like Leviticus chapter Nine might be. No? Is it 12? What's the parasha? If you have David Stern's version, you can easily see it because it'll say which Torah portion. Do you know? Medically, when you analyze the blood, the platelets are the strongest on day eight so that the baby wouldn't bleed to death. Yeah. So God knew what he was doing. vitamin K level is high enough that the blood will pro clot properly, but um, at that point the baby isn't so strong that it can fight them off as well. That makes sense. Thank you. Which one was it? Did you find it? <laughs> Thank you. It's, uh, oh, that's Exodus notes of it. Oh, Kadoshim? Nope. Achaimot? Oh, Tazria. Okay. Parashat Tazria on the website, the commentary I wrote will explain why the eighth day and things like that. So that's a good question. What I want to do right now for the students listening to this audio commentary is I want to go from the live class that I recorded that evening uh, because we ran out of time during the study, and I want to insert some information from a uh, previous study as it bears um, relevance for our um, Galatians notes here. We're going to turn now in the Galatians notes to um, point number six entitled Lesson from Acts Chapter 10. I have already recorded a commentary to this, uh, uh, to this particular section of scripture. I want to pull in some of that pre-recorded information uh, right now for the students listening to this commentary and uh, show how it is actually the same phenomenon, the same blindness 
that was facing the first century Judaisms uh, that Paul was combating in his letter to Galatians, I want to show you now how it's the very same issue that um, God was showing to Peter in Acts chapter 10 with the vision that he showed him there with the sheet that was lowered down with all manner of animals on it. Most Christians, to be sure, understand the vision to pertain to food. And um, even so, in many Christian commentaries, you're going to find that the conclusion to Acts chapter 10 is that God lifted the dietary restrictions as outlined in Leviticus chapter 11 and Deuteronomy chapter 14. But what I do show you now from my commentary is not only does it not pertain to food, but that it actually is relevant to the same information that we're studying right now in our Galatians notes. If you'd like a full treatment of the Acts 10 um, uh paragraph or the Acts 10 lesson, then go to the website at graftedin.com, click on more lessons, and the Acts chapter 10 uh, notes are there along with their, the, the full audio portion. But what I want to do now is just lift maybe about 15 or 20 minutes from that for, um, for this section here in Galatians on Acts chapter 10. And then what we'll do after that is we'll go back into the live classroom for, um, for the Galatians notes. Uh, for point number seven, okay? Here now is the information on point six from Acts chapter 10. We need to start first by defining some Greek terms that are going to show up in this particular pericope, this little section. The Greek terms uh, that we're going to be using show up in the study as bullet points. Um, there's about, what, one, two, three, four, five, six of them. But before we do that, again, keep in mind that a careful reading of Acts chapter 10 and Peter's vision and his conversation with Hashem is going to show that this simple fisherman was also blinded by the prevailing halakha that sought to avoid Gentiles at all costs. And that's why God had to send him the vision. So, firstly, allow me to define the important Greek words that we're going to encounter during this lesson, and then we'll jump right into it, okay? Greek, uh, I'm sorry, Strong's number fi uh, 5399 is phobeo. Coupled with theos um, equals fearer of God. It's a noun, masculine, in essence, that means God fearer. I didn't define the word theos there. I didn't give you the Greek number. I should have. Um, maybe I'll go back and correct that in my commentary at a later date. The next Greek word is Strong's number 2840, koinao. It's a verb, um, and it means to make common, to make Levitically unclean, render unhallowed defile, profane. The next Greek word is Strong's number 2839, um, koinos. It's an adjective. It is defined as common, in essence, ordinary, belonging to generality by the Jews, unhallowed, profane. The next word is Strong's number 2511, katarizo. It's a verb. It means to make clean, cleanse, Consecrate, dedicate, purify morally or ritually. The next word is Strong's number 111 is athamitas. It's an adjective and it's defined as contrary to law and justice, illicit, in essence, taboo. And the final word on my list there is Strong's number 169, akathartos. It's an adjective and it means unclean, ceremonially, that which must be abstained from according to Levitical law or foul. Next question. When Hashem responds to Kepha's refusal, he only instructs Kepha not to call common, the Greek word koinao, that which he, God, has cleansed, the Greek word katharizo. 
Why doesn't Hashem also teach Kifa not to call unclean, akathartos, that which God is ostensibly also cleansed, katharizo? Did you understand my question? In other words, God only um, corrects one of Kifa's terms. Peter says, I've never eaten anything common, koinos, or unclean, akathartos. But God only responds to the term koinos. God does not respond to Kifa's use of the term akathartos. That's my question. Here's my answer. Obviously, God is not cleansed, katharidzo, those animals that he created to be intrinsically unclean, akathartos. That's the answer. That unlocks the meaning of the passage. If I, Ariel bin Lyman Hanavi, the author of this commentary, could convey this single important point to your average Christian pastor, then we would not be having this conversation at all. Don't you agree? If I could just get my Christian friends to understand that God is responding to one of Peter's terms and not the other, then a careful distinction can be made behind the meaning of both Peter's misunderstanding and God's correction of Peter's misunderstanding. The Levitical definition of permitted and forbidden animals, as outlined in chapter 11, cannot change based on the hermeneutic principle that God remains the same both yesterday, today, and forever. Why would he need to change the rules governing the definition of food with the arrival of his son? It's a rhetorical question. It makes nonsense to support such a rendering and a reading of Acts chapter 10. And yet, unfortunately, that's exactly the commentaries that we read on Acts chapter 10 in your average Christian bookstore. Now again, I pick on Christians now because most Jewish people do not write commentaries to Acts chapter 10. The synagogue does not concern themselves with the apostolic writings. No, this is primarily a Christian-only debate. But, but when I use the term Christian there, I'm also including Messianics, we Jews who have embraced Messiah. So, it makes nonsense to support such a reading of Acts chapter 10 after we dig deeper into the Greek words behind um, uh, the rendering of Acts chapter 10. To be sure, if God were supposedly changing the rules, okay, let's just suppose God were changing the rules, alright? Let's entertain that notion for a moment. You think giving the information to a country bumpkin like Kepha, in a vision no less, is the, is the right way to do it? No, I would say that it's the wrong way to go about doing it. Wouldn't you agree? Yes, I called Kifa a country bumpkin. In Jewish terms or Yiddish terms, he's a guter yid. He, he knows what he knows because he was raised that way. Not necessarily knows what he knows because he studied it out or knows what he knows because he's got a higher learning um, degree under his belt. Um, in other words, Shaul would be the counterpart to Kifa. Kifa's just kind of a good... A uh, good old country boy and does what he does because he was raised that way. And Kifa is like your college graduate who's got a match, master's degree in, in the topics that he studies. All right, that's not to say that one is better than the other. I'm just, I'm just describing the, um, the, uh, um, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? The education level of, of, of the two. A fisherman of, of, of the first century was not known to be an educated man. All right. And Kifa is a fisherman. Nothing wrong with that. All right. At any rate, um, if God were trying to change the rules of Leviticus chapter 11 and Deuteronomy chapter um, 14, why 
would he give it to Peter, first of all, <laughs> knowing Peter's profession, and two, and even more to the point, why would he do it in a vision? Doesn't make sense. All right. Um, we should not suppose that this is a mystery hidden from the Jewish people only now to be revealed after a son has gone to the execution stake. You know what I mean by mystery there? Mysterion. The Greek term refers to um, a mystery that was formerly hidden yet now revealed for the sake of um, uh, continuing revelation or continuing um, prophecy. Uh, and it's being revealed because the, uh, the times are now at hand that God has determined that the mystery is to be revealed. All right? That mystery is true when it comes to the mystery of the gospel that the Gentiles are now to be welcomed into Israel's full-fledged covenant members if they place their trust in Yeshua. That is the mystery of the gospel. That's true. That's something that was hidden from the Jewish people as a whole only to be revealed to Paul later on and to the rest of the Jerusalem council. However, what we have, what the, what's taking place here to Peter is not necessarily a, the mystery of Kashrut, is what I'm trying to say. It is, in fact, related to the mystery of the gospel that I just described above. So, don't get confused. Question. If Hashem is not cleansing, katharizo, unclean, akatharitas animals, then what exactly is he cleansing? How are we to understand the vision? In other words, Hashem says, Peter, don't refer to as common, koinos, that which I have cleansed, kateiro, uh, okay? Kataridzo, um, I'm sorry. That which I've cleansed. Did you know that the word kataridzo um, is related to our English word cauterize? When we clean a wound, wound we cauterize it. We clean a, room, a wound. That's where the Greek word kataridzo, cauterize, you hear it in there? Um, God is basically telling Peter that he's cleansing something. He's cauterizing something. And he's cauterizing that which Peter refers to as koinos, or common. So, how are we to understand the vision, and how are we to understand Hashem's answer? If he's not cleansing that which is akathartos, that which is intrinsically unclean, but only cleansing that which is koinos, that which is common, then what does the vision mean? Alright, answer. I personally believe that Kepha's interpretation of his own vision is the best and most important interpretation offered. Let me just pause and let that sink in for a moment. We, in the later emerging Torah communities, which would include the church, obviously, come along and supposedly teach that our interpretation of Peter's vision is that the dietary laws have been lifted. And yet, in that explanation, we conveniently ignore, and you can hear the, uh, the, um, um, you can hear the um, sarcasm in my voice, we conveniently ignore Peter's own definition and interpretation of his vision. Hello? Something's wrong there. Alright? Peter was puzzled about the vision at first, to be sure. That's what the text tells us. And yet we come along and say, clearly, this Acts chapter 10 refers to the, um, the lifting of the dietary restrictions. Clearly? How can we be so bold as to say that when Peter himself didn't fully understand? If it was clear to Peter, how come he didn't just go... Duh! I get it! Oh, God! You're lifting the dietary restrictions as outlined in Leviticus chapter 11 and Deuteronomy chapter um, 14. Duh! I get it, God! It's so simple. Why didn't I figure it out? Well, thankfully, Peter doesn't respond that way. In fact, the text tells us that Peter was troubled for a while. But only after the Holy Spirit gave him 
the object lesson behind the vision, that is, the men who come to visit Peter and his subsequent visit to Cornelius' home, which we're going to read about here in a moment. Only after then does Peter make the connection and, and bring the vision and its meaning um, to, to light. Peter then confesses, oh, I get it. This isn't about food. It's about people. So let's read that, all right? Um, I personally, let me start with the answer again. I personally believe that Kepha's interpretation of his own vision is the best and most important op interpretation offered, namely this. What Hashem has designated as kosher, that is, say, fit for consumption, and treif, not fit for consumption, in the Torah of Moshe, no, excuse me, in the Torah of Moshe, concerning food, still remains clean, tahor, and unclean, tameh, respectively. Although the sheet contained all manner of animals, I believe what Hashem is trying to get Kepha to understand is that the animals represent all manners of peoples, not the literal animals themselves. This interpretation is in accord with the unchangeable nature of Hashem, and to be sure, is this not how Kepha interprets the vision himself in verses 28, verse 34, and verse 35? All right, let's read those verses. Verse 28 of chapter uh, 10 of Acts. Quote, He said to them, he is Peter, and them is the, um, uh, the Gentiles, to include Cornelius. He said to them, quote, You are well aware that for a man who is a Jew to have close association with someone who belongs to another people or to come and visit him is something that just isn't done. But God has shown me not to call any person common or unclean. End quote. Here's verse 11. Then Kepha addresses them. I now understand that God does not play favorites, but that whoever fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him no matter what people he belongs to. End quote. Emphasis mine. Those are from David Stern's CJB. All right? Do you see how Peter defines the vision, how Peter interprets the vision, and in Peter's interpretation, he does not give the same interpretation that modern Christian scholars apply to the vision? Do you think there's something wrong then with our modern interpretation of the vision if it does not square with Peter's interpretation of the vision? I would think so. Question. But I thought that the Torah forbade Jews from having contact with Gentiles. Isn't, it, isn't that what Kiva explicitly tells his Gentile associates in verse 28, which you quoted above? Good question. Now we're going to move into a second aspect of the meat of what Peter's trying to um, convey in his interpretation, all right? Um, it is true that he did say that, that or, or he, he said that it's unlawful, but we have to look at that, all right? I now turn, in an effort to answer this part of my question, to... Ten varying versions of the same verse. Okay, observe Acts ten twenty-eight in ten various yet common English translations, where the original Greek word athamitas has been identified and understood in each version. Now, just to refresh you, the word athamitas. If we go back up to our table there, turn backwards in my commentary. Uh, on um, the bottom of page 10 and the top of page 11, um, the second to the last one, Strong's number 111, athamitas is an adjective defined as, quote, contrary to law and justice, illicit, in essence, taboo. All right, that's athamitas. All right, that's what, Paul, that's what Peter um, utilizes in the Greek when the phrase 
unlawful is rendered in the um, English, athamitas. All right, let's read each version, um, highlighting the Greek word that's been translated into its English receptor, and then at the end of that, we'll do uh, an analysis. The first one is the New American Standard Bible, the NESB. It reads, and he said to them, you yourselves know how unlawful, there's our word, our Greek word there, unlawful, it is for a man who is a Jew to associate with a foreigner or to visit him, and yet God has shown me that I should call that I should not call any man unholy or unclean. The God's Word translation, the GWT, reads this way. He said to them, You understand how wrong, the word wrong there, underlined in my written commentary, is the Greek word athamitas. You understand how wrong it is for a Jewish man to associate or visit with anyone of another race. But God has shown me that I should no longer call anyone impure or unclean. Next on our list is the KJV, King James. And he said unto them, Ye know that it is an unlawful thing, the phrase unlawful thing, there is our Greek term, athamitas, for a man that is a Jew to keep company or come unto, come unto one of another nation. But God that showed me that I should not call any man common or unclean. The authorized stand, I'm sorry, the American Standard Version, the ASV, reads this way. And he said unto them, Ye yourselves know how it is an unlawful thing, that phrase unlawful thing is athamitas, uh, for a man that is a Jew to join himself or come unto one of another nation, and yet unto me God hath showed that I should not call any man common or unclean. The BBE, the Bible in basic English, reads this way. And he said to them, You yourselves have knowledge that it is against the law. The phrase against the law is our Greek phrase, uh, Greek term, athamitas. It is against the law for a man who is a Jew to be in the company of one who is of another nation. But God has made it clear to me that no man may be named uncommon or unclean. The DBY, Darby Bible Translation, reads this way, and he said to them, Ye know how it is unlawful, the word unlawful there is athamitas in Greek, for a Jew to be joined or come to one of a strange race. And to me, God has shown to call no man common or unclean. Next we have uh, Weymouth New Testament, W-E-Y. He said to them, You know better than most that a Jew is strictly forbidden, the term strictly forbidden is athamitas, to associate with a Gentile or visit him. But God has taught me to call no one unholy or unclean. Next we have the Webster Bible translation, the W-B-S. It reads this way, And he said to them, Ye know that it is an, an unlawful thing. The word unlawful thing there is athamitas. For a man that is a Jew to keep company or come to one of another nation. But God has shown me that I should not call any man common or unclean. Next we have the World English Bible, the W-E-B. It reads this way. He said to them, You yourselves know how it is an unlawful thing. The word unlawful thing there is athamitas. For a man who is a Jew to join himself or come to one of another nation. But God has shown me that I shouldn't call any man unholy or unclean. And then finally in this list, we have the YLT, Young's Literal Translation, which reads this way. And he said unto them, Ye know how it is unlawful. The word unlawful there, athamitas. For a man, a Jew, to keep company with or to come unto one of another race. But to me, God did show to call no man common or unclean. Okay. Now, isn't it interesting that from ten English translations, all but three of them up there, render our Greek word as unlawful? Those three are the GWT, the BBE, and the WEY. 
They, however, attempt to supply a slightly different nuance than unlawful to this word, an attempt I call commendable, by the way. Now, again, I, I'm not trying to slam any version of the Bible. That is far from the purpose of this exercise in bringing out all these translations. What is more, each translation in its own way conveys part of the proper um, uh, the proper understanding or proper um, uh, translation from the original Greek. I'm not saying that they're completely off base. However, what I am saying is that the um, translator's job is to capture not only the meaning of the word, but the nuance of the word. And sometimes words can have different nuances. And in this case, if you're not familiar with either the Greek nuance and or its corresponding Hebrew nuance, then you'll fail to render that into a receptor language. In fact, I, I'm often um, confronted with messianics who say, well, yeah, of course those translations are biased because they're, they're, they're translated from a Greek mindset. And what they mean by the term Greek there is a pejorative um, label against Christians who have no um, earthly idea what Hebraic mindset is. Therefore, um, people who make those statements about said Christians are usually looking down their nose at those very same Christians um, due to the lack of Hebraic understanding that those Christians supposedly um, don't have. Um, a, a Hebraic understanding that these very same Messianics supposedly do possess. I'm not going to be one of those types of Hebraics who looks down my nose at my Christian brothers who don't have a proper Hebraic understanding. We're all in a learning phase. Neither None of us has arrived, and we're all growing. So let's just grow up and exercise a little bit of grace and forgiveness towards our brothers for the things that uh, we are learning, okay? And for the things that we stumble over. But in this scenario where we have Messianics versus Christians, it's, I, I'm, um, I'm often confronted by Messianics who say, well, Ariel, you need to read a Hebraic version like the True Name version or the Scriptures or David Stern's version, people who, are, who translate the Bible with a Hebraic mindset, and then you'll have a proper understanding of verses like this. Really? Well, then let's turn to the Scriptures and see what they have to say. The Scriptures, a popular version among Messianics, leaves room for questioning the real intent of the translators. Let's read the Scriptures here. Quote, and he said to them, you know that a Yehudite man is not allowed, the word not allowed there is our Greek term, athamitas, um, is not allowed to associate with or to go to one of another race. But Elohim has shown me that I should not call any man common or unclean, end quote. You see, the, the, the uh, scriptures in this case don't do any better. They still leave the term athamitas um, ambiguous, uh, uh, as to try and figure out what it's referring to, you know, in the nuanced form. It's not allowed. Not allowed by what? By man or by God? The scriptures didn't tell me. Therefore, in this case, I'm actually going to stick with David Stern's version. All right? The Greek word, athamitas, found in only two places in the apostolic scriptures, I might add, only here in Acts 10.28, and additionally in 1 Peter 4.3, is a composite of two Greek words. Now, again, the word tithemi, meaning, quote, to set, put, place, set forth, establish, uh, is the first part of the, or, or is part of the word athamitas. It's, uh, so we got the word tithemi. And then again, we have the article A, the letter A, which is pronounced a, a plus tithemi, thus athamitas. Um, the, the, uh, the article renders the word tithemi into its negative value. Again, that's according to um, Thayer's and Smith's Bible dictionary under the word athamitas. Thus, athamitas does convey 
the notion of quote-unquote unlawful. But we should carefully note that if Kiefer were wanting us to understand that such a prohibition were rooted in the written word of God, the Torah, then he would have or should have used a conjugation of the Greek word namas, which normally refers to God's Torah. To be sure, our writer Luke uses anamas, which is a, the Greek article, plus namas, in Acts 2.28, which is rendered wicked in KJV and godless in the New American Standard Bible. Okay, Godless. And, and what it's referring to in those verses is those men who crucified Yeshua, they are wicked men. They are godless men. They are anamas men. The um, uh, TSBD, uh, the Bible Dictionary, defines the adjective anamas as, quote, destitute of the Mosaic law, departing from the law, a violator of the law, lawless, wicked, end quote. That's anamas, according to the TSBD. Now, um... Again, my point is, by comparison, the adjective athamitas refers to that which, although not written down, is simply socially unacceptable, viz. taboo, but certainly not proscribed by Mosaic law. It's not forbidden by Mosaic law. That's why David Stern's CJB, or his um, Jewish New Testament, whichever one you have there, they're the same, same translation, his, David's, his, his, his CJB is a better translation of this pasuk. Let's read the verse again out of David Stern's version. Quote, He said to them, You are well aware that for a man who is a Jew to have close association with someone who belongs to another people or to come and visit him is something that just isn't done. That phrase there, something that just isn't done, is the Greek term athamitas. But God has shown me not to call any person common or unclean. End quote. Again, um, if you'd like a thorough treatment of Stern's reasoning behind his translation of this verse, I recommend his Jewish New Testament commentary to this passage, which is found on pages 258 and 259, where he explains, uh, more or less, how I just explained uh, why athamitas um, should be rendered not as unlawful like it is in most English translations, but rather as um, taboo or socially unacceptable. The Torah of Moshe never prohibits Jews from quote-unquote keeping company or quote-unquote coming unto one of another nation, just like Peter said. It doesn't do it. This statement of Kepha's reflects not the written word of God, but rather what I call, quote, the ethnocentric Jewish exclusivism baggage that the Torah communities of his day had engineered. Baggage not uncommon among people groups who are also marginalized, like ancient Israel was in the first century. Okay, Ethnocentric Jewish exclusivism. Um, covenantal gnomism. It's the idea of Jewish nationalism that suggests that all Jews and only Jews are chosen or acceptable by God uh, by the very nature of their ethnicity alone. That is to say, uh, being born to a, a, a people group, um, an ethnicity, uh, the Jewish people. And so, in other words, Kiefel was, was, was really just regurgitating the standard mantra of his day. Now, even though he was doing that when he said, oh no, you've, you've heard that it's uh, uh, for Jewish people to have contact with Gentiles is, is something that's just not done. This did not excuse his error, which is why Hashem went through all the trouble to send him the vision in the first place. Kiefel, you are wrong in in, in that estimation of non-Jewish peoples. And that's what the vision is designed to do, is to correct 
Kifa's errant theology. In the end, the message of the Acts 10 vision is crystal clear. Here it is. I say crystal clear there only after we've done our, our, our structural analysis and our careful exegesis. Beyond that, it is very difficult to figure out. But here's the message. Gentiles in Yeshua are not intrinsically, intrinsically unclean. Gentiles are not akathartos, as the first century Judaisms were professing. They, Gentiles, like all men, have been created in God's image, and as such can be viewed as defiled koinos by the stain of sin in need of cleansing katharizo. Man, created clean, fell into a state of unclean koinos, later to be declared cleansed katharizo by the blood of the sacrificial lamb of God. In other words, to use the language of the vision, Jews are not lambs while Gentiles are pigs. Okay, if we were to just jump back in to the metaphors of the animals. Jews are not lambs while Gentiles are pigs. Rather, Jews and Gentiles are both lambs. You see? Both have become unclean, koinos, by sin. Both have been cleansed, katharizo, by Yeshua. No one is intrinsically unclean, akathartos. No one was created sinful. That's the whole point. Born into sin? Yes. Created sinners? No. Everything that God created was good. Man fell. Okay? And it was, in fact, man's um, dilemma. It was man's fault. And God's solution is the Messiah. But when man was created, and all men share the DNA of Adam, we would agree, right? We all stem from Adam. No one, there's, no, there's only one race in the world today, and it's the human race, and we all stem from the human being called Adam. Therefore, in that association with Adam, we are all, both Jews and Gentiles, created clean, but we're born into sin. We inherit the sinful nature, all right? We are born into sin. We are not created sinners. Kepha's assessment which was the standard Jewish song and dance, that the Gentiles were to be avoided was wrong from the word go. And that's why the vision was sent in the first place. People, I want you to understand as you're listening to my commentary today, this becomes a central theme of the apostolic scriptures, particularly in the way that Paul writes his letters. Um, you're going to find this theme of the, of the ethnocentric Jewish exclusivism uh, being challenged in Paul's letters to Galatians, Romans, um, Ephesians, and now we're seeing it here in Acts as well. Because the whole first century social dilemma as seen through the eyes of your standard Jewish person was this. What do we do with the Gentiles? That's the social dilemma in the first century as seen through the eyes of a standard Jewish person. That's why God had to send visions like this. That's why God had to recommission Paul on the road to Damascus to explain to him that he needs to take the good news, the gospel, to the Gentiles in the same manner that the Jewish people were receiving the good news of Yeshua. It all stems from our familiarity today with what the term covenantal nomism and Jewish exclusivism um, mean as uh, related to the first century Judaisms. If we fail to grasp that hermeneutic principle, then we will forever misunderstand the apostolic scriptures, and particularly Paul. So I'm telling you right now, over uh, through this podcast, please get it within your minds to understand this concept, all right? Gentiles 
going back to my commentary now, are to be accepted as bona fide Israelites without having to succumb to any man-made conversion rites. Again, in the language of the vision, all right, this is going to sound really funny. Pigs, an unclean animal, viz. tamei akathartos, do not need to become lambs, a clean animal, viz. tahor katairo, in order to be accepted into Israel. Did you get that? The pigs don't have to become lambs in order to be accepted, because that's really what the Jewish people of their day were saying of those pigs, of which the pigs were identified as the Gentiles. Actually, they were, they were identified as dogs and cockroaches, but we're just going to use pigs because people don't eat dogs and cockroaches. But people do eat pigs. Okay, and that's going to do it for the insert from Acts chapter 10. I simply wanted you as students to understand the relevancy of the information as it pertains to our Galatian study that we're going through right now. Paul is combating an ethnocentric Jewish exclusivism that was um, pre prevalent in the theology of his day, of his first century Judaisms. And God's giving the... Um, the vision to Peter in Acts chapter 10 specifically relates to that same type of blindness. We see that Peter had the same blindness as well. If you would like more information on the uh, relevancy of the Acts 10 vision as it pertains to food, and whether or not God was um, cleansing all food, um, per the church's um, current interpretation of that particular passage in Acts chapter 10, go ahead and go back to the website at graftina.com and uh, click on the More Lessons tab and listen to the complete Acts chapter 10 commentary, and it'll focus on the side uh, that deals with whether or not God is uh, lifting the dietary restrictions as outlined in Acts or as outlined in Leviticus chapter 11 and Deuteronomy chapter 14. But I simply wanted us as students to see the information that was relevant for the Galatians material. That being said, we're now ready to move on back to the uh, to the live class that I taught that night. We're now ready to move on to point number seven, which is entitled "Under the Law." Now let's talk real quick about what under the law means, okay? You've heard this phrase as well? We usually hear it in this, in this context. We're not under the law, we're under grace. Again, theologically, that's accurate. We're not under the law. The problem is, under the law doesn't mean what you think it means. Or at least what the person who says, we're not under the law, we're under grace, thinks it means. It really doesn't mean what they think it means. Actually, under the law and works of law in Christian circles are synonymous things. It means keeping the law. Under the law and works of law are the same thing in standard Christian circles. Works of the law means keeping the law. Under the law means keeping the law. But for Paul, they're two different things. They're both bad, but they're two different sides of bad. So, to be under the law is a pejorative position originally hinted at all the way back in Deuteronomy 29, 19 through 21. I won't read the passage. I'll just, I'll let you see it there. It's on the top of page three. Basically, Moshe does, in fact, say that if you do not keep the Torah, you will be under the curses. That's kind of like under the weight of the law or under the penalty of the law. So the verse clearly teaches us, the Pasuk here, that to have every curse written in this book upon you is to be in a state of not forgiven by Adonai, viz, under condemnation, viz, under the law. So when the Christians say we're not under the law, we're under grace, again, theologically, that's accurate. But contextually, it's way off base again. Under the law does not mean keeping the law. Under the law means under condemnation of the law. It's shorthand, under the condemnation of the law. Paul just calls it under the law. The Greek phrase is uponomon. Okay? Uponomos, I'm sorry. So, only the spirit of the Holy One writing the Torah on the heart and mind can bring the participant to the intended goal of surrendering to the Mashiach and out from under the curse pronounced in the law. Yeah, the, ta the Torah has curses. Is that a bad thing or is that a good thing? 
Or is it just a fair thing? It's fair. Yeah, God says if you're righteous, I'll bless you. And if you're unrighteous, I won't bless you. Yeah, that's a good built-in feature that God blesses the righteous and curses the wicked. So the, the curses of the law are a good part of God's character. They're necessary. Shows that God is just, right? Because what if God blessed the righteous and he also blessed the wicked? There's no motivation to be righteous. God's not a fair God. So if the Torah condemns unrighteousness, that's a proper function of the law. And if you are unrighteous and you come under that, that position, then you're just doing what God said he would do in his word. Right? Okay. So with our natural mind, however, both Jews and Gentiles, reread, do this and don't do that. And we have a tendency to misunderstand the grace behind the words. Yeshua came to explain the gracious intent of every command by explaining the primary thrust of the Torah in the first place, which is what? Leading its reader to, the, to a genuine trusting faith in the Messiah found therein, namely himself. Yeah. Moreover, grace is needed when sin blinds our eyes to believe that covenant status is granted on the basis of ethnicity, like first century Israel. Whether natural or achieved, when I say ethnicity, you know what I mean when I say natural or achieved, those words are underlined? The Jewish people are naturally Jewish. They're born that way. But Gentiles who buy their Jewish identity are achieved. That is to say, they achieve it. Historic Israel of the first century genuinely, genuinely believed that by virtue of being born Jewish, they were automatically guaranteed covenant status. I should have, I should have written this to say guaranteed lasting covenant status. They are covenant members on a natural level, but on an eternal level they're not until they graduate to faith in Jesus. So, I need to rewrite that. What is more, from their point of view, Jewish people of the first century, if someone from non-Jewish stock, i.e. the Gentiles on this side of the room, wished to, be, uh, wished to join the covenant people, all he or she needed to do was convert to Judaism. Hence, my use of the terms natural and achieved, respectively. Natural Israelites, those native-born, held to the prevailing theology that Torah was given to maintain the covenant status already acquired at birth. Underline that sentence. Natural Israelites, those native-born, held to the prevailing theology that Torah was given to maintain the covenant status already required at birth. In other words, if you ask the Jewish people of the first century, specifically the teachers, well, if the Torah doesn't save you, and Jewish identity does, what use is the Torah? And they'll say, I'm glad you asked. Torah doesn't give us our place in the covenant. Torah helps us maintain our place in the covenant. Because if we fail to keep Torah, God says, you're out. So Torah helps us maintain the identity that we gained at birth. That's vastly different than what the church is teaching that the first century Jewish people believed. Or that the 21st century Jewish people believe. You guys see the difference? The church teaches that Jewish people of then and today keep the Torah to become saved. And the Jewish people are saying, no, no, no. We don't keep it to become saved. We keep it to stay saved, in a sense. Okay, That's called covenantal gnomism, and we talked about that a few weeks ago. So let me close this up again. I've got one last paragraph. Um, the ger, Hebrew for stranger or alien, was deemed as someone in the process of becoming a Jew in the vehicle of proselyte conversion. So there's the answer to your question, Wendy. What do they think? I'm sorry, uh, you asked the question, Becky. What, what, what do they think about the Jews? They just thought about the Jews as potential. They, they the Jewish people on this side of the room, thought about the, Jew, the Gentiles as Jews someday. Someday you guys will be Jewish too. And then you can be a covenant members as well. You can be part of Israel. Okay.
Rav Shaul went to great lengths to refute such teachings in his letters, both to the Romans and to the Galatians. To be sure, if we apply this hermeneutic, the one that I'm teaching today, to those letters instead of adopting a grace versus law. How many have heard that argument? Law versus grace or grace versus law. They're diametrically opposed. Law and grace cannot exist together. That's such a, that, that's a, oh gosh, that's such a dead argument. Let's stop beating that horse. Um, if we apply the hermeneutic I'm giving you now, the letters will make more sense. Um, I am convinced now more than ever that a foundational understanding of Paul's writings must take into account the historical fact, you can underline this too, must take into account the fact that first century Israel reckoned herself as right standing before Hashem, that is to say covenant members, viz, saved, on the basis of ethnicity read as being Jewish alone. She did not feel that keeping the Torah equaled positional forensic righteousness, viz, salvation. She didn't think, gosh, if I keep the Torah, I'll be saved. That's not what she thought. She doesn't think it today. I wish the church would drop that argument. You understand? The church has standing on this side going, you Jews, you keep the Torah because you think it's going to save you. You need to understand that the law is done away with and Jesus is the only one that can save you. Theologically true of the last part, what they just said fundamentally untrue the first part because the Jews are standing going what are you talking about we're not keeping the Torah to be saved so the church is missing the argument so um, in other words last part of their argument is true first part fundamentally wrong so um, first century Israel reckoned herself as right standing before Hashem on the basis of ethnicity she did not feel that keeping the Torah equaled righteousness positionally she concluded albeit incorrectly that keeping Torah was the vehicle that one used to maintain covenant status already achieved either at birth or by conversion. That is the meat of this study, those two pages. That's why we're in the position we're in right now, and we have such huge misunderstandings with the church, because the church now stands on this side of the room, pointing their fingers at we messianics, going, you silly messianics, you're still keeping the Torah to earn brownie points with God. And we're standing on the other side of the room going, what are you talking about? We're not keeping the Torah to be saved. We're keeping the Torah because we're saved. So we're saying the same thing and essentially as Jewish people were. We're not saying we're saved because we're Jewish. That's, that's where we disagree with the Jewish people of the first century and Jewish people of the day. We are saying faith in Jesus saves us, but keeping Torah is the lifestyle of an already saved person. So the argument is false where the church says you guys are keeping Torah to be saved. Thus, they're going to preach over and over from the pulpits. The law is done away with, and there's nothing you can do to earn God's favor. And on the one hand, we sit in the pews and say, amen. But on the other hand, we go, are, are you accusing me of keeping the Torah to be saved? See how that works? So we're in this pickle. So, and I, ran up, I burned up all my time and didn't leave any room for questions and answers. So let me dismiss in prayer. When we come back, I'm going to give you number eight. And then I want to begin to give you um, a translation of the Torah that I took, David Stern's version, and I doctored it up to fit the, uh, the, the phrases that we use. And we're going to actually start um, exegeting the passages. And then we'll do that for the rest of the session. I don't know how far we'll get, but I do want to take a bite out of that. I mean, I have it here already. where it's David. So if you have David Stern's version, it's going to look the same, except for in the bold parts where I changed David Stern's wording to fit what I believe is David, what Paul's actually saying. We'll take that along with my commentary and, and work our way down through several passages. We may only get to chapter 2, but at least if we can get there, that's a, that's a start. So it's 8.05 and I'm out of time. So let me close, close in prayer and we'll dismiss. Abba, we bless your name and we say thank you for saving us. Thank you for opening our eyes and drawing us unto yourself, giving us a choice. And Father, thank you for 
in your mercy and grace, drawing us close to you. We know that the work that you've begun in this, you'll finish. And that's why we know that we can rely on, on what you're doing in us. Because you don't start something and then leave it to ruin. The things that you start, you make sure that they come to pass and that you will finish them and complete them. And therefore, the work that you're doing in us, we know, is a completed work already because of what Yeshua's done. And yet we know it's a process. So be gracious to us. Help us as we uh, 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 formulate our communities and, and learn to love one another in messianic love. And Father, help us to be lights and ambassadors, as we might say. Because those around us are walking in darkness and they're groping. And we have the light inside of us. Help us to let that light shine. Thank you, Father, for all that you do. For it's in Yeshua's name that we pray. Amen. That concludes our show for today. It is my desire that this continuing series of teachings will assist the average non-Jewish believer or new Messianic Jewish believer in his desire to become a more mature child of God. And now, O Israel, what does the Lord your God ask of you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and to observe the Lord's commands and decrees that I am giving you today for your own good. To the Lord your God belong the heavens, even the highest heavens, the earth, and everything in it. Yet the Lord set his affection on your forefathers and loved them. And he chose you, their descendants, above all the nations, as it is today. Circumcise your hearts, therefore, and do not be stiff-necked any longer. Because the Torah is written on the hearts of all who truly name the name of Yeshua as Lord and Savior, it is meant to be followed to the best of our ability. We have no reason for fear of condemnation or the trappings of legalism. My name is Ariel Ben Lyman Hanavi. The intro and outro song were written, produced, and performed by Ryan Kingsley. For more information on contacting Ryan, you can reach me by email at yeshua613 at hotmail.com. That's Y-E-S-H-U-A number 613 at hotmail.com. Or visit our website at graftedin.com. That's graftedin.com. <laughs>